0: Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney. I'm here today with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Sean. Glad to be here again.
0: Good. Um, so we have an awesome guest today, um, someone I've spoken with in the past. I know you're certainly excited to speak to you as a fellow athlete, uh, Randy Pierce. Uh, Randy, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me back, and and good to meet you as well, Bruno.
1: Nice to meet you too, Randy.
0: <laughs> good. So, Brandy, uh, Randy, you're the president of 2020 Vision Quest. Um, that is your official title. Although I feel like you can put a lot of other titles after that, and we'll dive into some of those as we, uh, as we uh, work our way through the through the show today. But I was hoping we could start off with just a brief discussion about um, the history of your, your eye disease, like what happened? What is your eye condition?
2: Uh, when did you lose sight? Um, et cetera. Sure. Right. Eye condition, right. My, my eyes are apparently really healthy. Unfortunately, behind the eyes is where my problem is, right? So my optic nerves are what are dead, but, you know, growing up through, uh, through to the age of 21.99, I had normal sight and every expectation that was going to be the case. And then in the span of two weeks, I lost all of the sight in my right eye and half of the sight in my left eye. Very rapid. Uh, a great ophthalmologist got caught right away what was going on because the optic nerve is swollen. It's the only nerve you get to see from the outside, right? Looking through the pupil. And he got me into a neural ophthalmologist and they quickly were aware that I was in some, some pretty big trouble. And they were able to take some steps to get it a little bit under control. My condition is episodic. So while that left me, you know, legally blind—a term at the time I didn't even understand. Um, in fact, I had a lot of misunderstanding that that I was able to, you know, steadily educate myself and now do some work educating others about. Um, it eventually advanced as they somewhat expected, and over seven episodes and eleven years, I went to the stages. of of total blindness where I am now, or sometimes I like to joke, right? I I must be illegally blind since Mm -hmm. I'm beyond legal blindness. Um, (laughs) And that's where I am today, right? No, no light sensitivity, no motion. And, um, and, you know, the good part, I I always want to follow up with that is that, you know, going blind was plenty challenging, certainly plenty hard, but being blind isn't. And that's an important part of probably some of the discussions we'll have as we go forward. You know, and
0: it's, it's interesting you say that, right? Because most people would think, hey, the biggest fear is actually being totally blind. But it's that – I know you and I have talked about this before, that that transition to uh, blindness. There seems to be a lot of adaptations along the way or you're holding on to hope or you're holding on to trying to do things a certain way. But once you're totally blind, then it's you know kind of like, hey, I've arrived.
2: Now here's what I need to do, right? You know, I think it's true for everyone in any aspect of change – right? Change is hard for most people. And that's true for people in their change of their site. And there were times in my, as my site got lower and lower that I, I remember wishing, you know, well, maybe when it's all gone, I'll finally not have this, you know, worry. So I almost wished for it. And the truth is, you know, use every bit of site you can as best you can use all the tools you can to the best effect. That's what I believe. Because when it was gone, it was a little harder. Those adaptations needed more work. And they mean different things um but there was also as just as you suggest there's something about stability that says okay this is the framework from which i get to work and everything will be consistent as i work forward and the things i learn will always apply so
1: ready you have to have a it seems to have a very strong uh, mindset on dealing with uh, with your visual condition and it's 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 very impressive uh has it always been like that or (laughs) like i mean from the moment that you started to lose sight did you you doubt yourself uh like i mean how was that transition you know like i mean from 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 a moment that you're probably fearful and and now you're you you're so so strong-minded
2: right and the answer is that absolutely it was not always that case and it is not always that case. And that's true, again, like I think for everybody, we all have moments where we're not as strong, right? I have days today that, you know, I may get up and say, come on, blind again today, really? You know, and that's okay, because right, challenge is hard. And, you know, I think that's true of, of anybody with any condition, you know, including life, where we get up some days and aspects of it overwhelm us and we have to do the right self-care to make sure we're, we're better and able to handle it. And the trick is, How long do you wanna let it slow you down or stop you? That's sort of up to you, right? The sooner you change your mindset, the better. And that was true at the very start. When it first happened to me, I was not strong in my mindset. I felt a little helpless, a little hopeless. I thought everything fun and meaningful was not gonna be possible in my life. And fortunately, as is more often than I'd like to admit, admit in the world, I was wrong, right? Everything that I want to do is possible. The question is how much am I willing to problem solve and work to make it happen? And if it's important to me, you bet I do that.
1: That's very impressive. Uh, Going back to the condition, uh, have you ever received a formal diagnosis about the condition that affects your optic nerves?
2: Uh, I have. And you know, that's, that's really important. Like early days, they didn't have it. And the uncertainty, the unknown is always a little more daunting and intimidating. And, you know, Early on, any level of diagnosis made me feel better. Like, you know, the first time they called it optic neuritis made me feel a little better, which, you know, that just means my nerves are, you know, are swollen and dying. But what they have learned is that I have a unique mitochondrial disease. They can see it when they ran my genome. In fact, they actually ran my genome twice because they'd never seen the variants that I have, Um, but they can see the two points, right? Variants instead of mutations. That's the politically correct term. Um, but the mitochondrial at at the cellular cellular level for me is slightly distorted and nerves starting with my optic nerves, but actually all over my body die. And about every three to five years, a new set of nerves begin to die. You know, I don't have nerves below my knees. I don't feel my shins, my calves, my feet, um, My vasal nerve, which controls your autonomic functions, took some impact in 2016, right? So I have ongoing challenges every few years. My optic nerves were just the first ones. And honestly, they're probably the least impactful to me because I've had the most time to learn how to work around them. So, you know, I'm going to
0: touch back on something you you were just saying, how, um, you know, it really boils down to how much do you want to... Adapter, how much do you want effort to want to put into continue doing things because you realize that you can basically do just about everything that you could do before with a you know perfect vision and i think it's a nice segue into uh, talking a little bit about your running career because you have uh, accomplished well you know i I like to run too but (laughs) i've never run the boston marathon i've never qualified for that you know it's hard enough to do whenever you can see where you're running um can you talk a little bit about your your running career and, um, maybe some of the, you know, the highlights including the training for being in the Boston.
2: Sure. You know, and, uh, running like anything, you know, like these times in COVID, when you have something that you lose, you really learn to appreciate it and the value. Like when I lost my sight, I really began to appreciate the value of vision and my nerve condition for a while took away my ability to walk, not because of my eyes, but because of the damage to my cerebellum that put me in a wheelchair for uh, one year, eight months and 21 days. And in that case, I was able to work my way out of that through a lot of processes. Um, and when I began to walk again, I realized what a gift it is. And I began to, you know, walk in as many exciting places as possible that led to hiking, getting in better shape to hiking led to running. And as I did that, I began to learn that as a runner, I was actually reasonably more gifted than I anticipated. And, um, you know, I, I ran a lot of road races early on, including, you know, I ran a, a race in 2013 called the Boston Athletic Association 5K. It's the day before the Boston Marathon back then, same finish line. And I, I ran that race with my guide dog. First time a guide dog had ever done that. And when we crossed the finish line, they took a photo of us crossing the finish, celebrating ability awareness, right? Which is what I believe in, right? What you can do is always more important than what you can't do. So celebrate your ability. Don't don't put the focus on disability. Put the focus on what's important, what you can do. And if there's something you can't do and it's important, well, that's where you start getting into the notion of, you know, believing and problem-solving and achieving. But running was one example, right? I I was there running, and at that time, I, I ran both with my guide dog and also with human guides. But we crossed that finish line, and we were celebrating this moment. And they shared that on their social media. Again, great, great moment. But they shared it the day after we ran, the day of the 2013 Boston Marathon. And just as I was you know, sharing that with my friends, the bombs went off and ripped that flag display that's in our photo apart. And you know what that shares with us, right? It's the reality that when people don't communicate well and when people don't resolve differences well, awful things can happen. And what do you do again? Well, some of the lessons I learned my transition of a site, you put your focus forward. And that's where I really said, you know, I want to do more with this running. I'm first off, I said, I I want to elevate up to the Boston marathon because I'm going to run that because I want to respond with hope. And I want to join a community that says we celebrate the elite human spirit, not just the elite human athlete, because that's a part of Boston. And in the journey to do that, it actually took me, I thought I was going to do it that next year, But I uh, I had a tough journey. My my guide dog had osteosarcoma, bone cancer on his skull. And I I lost my boy that year. Um, And I I dedicated a lot of time to him instead of training and qualifying and all of that. But the next year, I dedicated the year to him. And that's where I discovered that in that training process, now relying on people instead of guides, I, I started working out a new technique for running. I use a rigid tether. A lot of people use a soft tether. That helps me as a totally blind athlete manage all the different terrains on the road, manage my size because I'm a bigger guy. I'm 6'4", 200 pounds, and that means I take up more room. So how can I get narrow, right? So we started solving all these problems, and on that journey, I started appreciating that I had good speed, and the more you practice, the better you get at everything, right? I like the expression, not practice makes perfect. A practice makes progress. And I got invited by Richard Hunter, an incredible man. He brings blind runners from all over the world together at the California international marathon. And he said, I, th- I think you're going to compete and do well out here. And I went out there in December that year and I, I won that first race. And there were some fun stories about that, but that set me up, you know, for one, one year later than expected to get into my first Boston marathon and run with a pair of friends, a husband and wife team you know, the husband ran the first half and the wife guided me for the second half. And, uh, you know, my first Boston marathon, I think was three fifty 37, three hours, 50 minutes and 37 seconds. And I, I felt great at the end of that. And I've had some bad marathons too, right? Cause it's hard, but all the time I start learning the power of teamwork, right? How much we bond and work together. That's true with my guide dogs. That's true with the people that I, that I train with. And, and, you know, that's an extra part of the experience that, you know, as a, Person who needs a guide to run, I get out of that, and that's something they get out of it too. Um, I could go in a lot more on that little gem with a story or two, but let me turn it back over to you, so I don't take too much time on you.
1: That's amazing. Like, it's still, with your uh, athletic achievements, there, it's something that interests me a lot. Uh, hiking, right? So you, you, besides like those marathons, like you're very much into hiking and. Uh, uh, I'm gonna follow up on the Mount Kilimanjaro hike, but I wanna. I'm interested also on on your uh, challenge of hiking 48 peaks in the in the state of New Hampshire, and you did that over the course of one season only, was it right?
2: Yeah, one one winter actually. So I've I've climbed them a couple of different times, um, and one particular winter in 2011 into 12, we took a three month window to do all of them during that winter season because it's. It's something that's rarely done for people, you know, in general, to be able to do them in the winter, or even to do them in one winter. So, in an effort to try to raise awareness for a lot of the things I believe in, I set out to do that. But I was sort of, uh, I was sort of taking it a little bit easier on myself because while well, I have climbed them now in the all-season time, with which by that I mean in the summer, where it's more challenging because the twisty, rocky, rooty. Where do you put your foot steps of the summer are actually my biggest challenge. And in the winter, I have new challenges because I may lose sensitivity in my hands to gloves. I may lose my hearing to hats, but the, the snow fills in all those tricky footings and it becomes smooth. And it may be slick, it may be icy, but I can wear devices on my feet that cover that, right? So you give up the biggest challenge even though you add some new problems. So winter lets me be faster. So doing them all in that one season maybe had a little bit of benefit to me as well. But still, you know, by by all measures, you know, a, an accomplishment I'm very proud of.
1: No, exactly. I mean, just doing a quick math there, it's almost like you you hiked a mountain every other day.
2: Huh. And, and to some extent, right? So, you know, 48 peaks and you've got 90 days roughly, right? So yeah. you're absolutely right. But the trick is you sometimes you're doing a, a couple of mountains on the same day. All right. You know, the, there's a Bonds Traverse in the winter where because you're going out into the wilderness, you go out and you get four peaks, but you're doing a 24 and a half mile day. Yeah. So you're putting some work in.
1: And also, like I mean, it might not be as known as sexy as Everest or Kilimanjaro, but I, I once heard that it's uh, it's actually, the White Mountains are actually quite treacherous because of the ever ending. Uh, I mean, the, the weather seems to shift unexpectedly, right?
2: Absolutely. And you know, there's two parts to that, right? I'm not a risk taker. I'm a problem solver. And I try to highlight the difference, right? I'm a risk manipulator because there's risk in everything we do. And the trick is to understand what are acceptable levels of safety and how can you get things to that point? And in the whites, one of the things that gets a lot of people in trouble and causes a lot of those challenges, they're very accessible. You can drive to areas where, you, where almost anybody can make an attempt on them. And that leads people to think there's a level of security. It's so quick to get to, quick to get out of, but then they get up into there and they don't realize how quick the weather can change and how quick they can make a wrong turn that gets them into the depths of a wilderness, that it is not easy to get up to them to get them rescued. And hypothermia kills people in July, often in the White Mountains, because you know we're going to have snow here tomorrow um, and significant snow probably in those mountains. And people just don't anticipate that. And lack of education is what does people a lot of harm in the hiking world, and you know, right? Probably lack of education does what some of us sight impaired people a lot of detriment, right? When we're talking about you know, trying to get jobs, trying to get advocacy, you know, all of those things. But the the reality is in the mountains, it's deadly for people. And I worked with search and rescue on a project, and I asked them, you know, hey, as, as close as you're following me, should I should I be concerned that you're worried about me? They said no. We see that you're solving problems and you're approaching this with an education and a preparedness. You're not the kind of person we have to worry about. And that doesn't mean I don't keep those precautions up, but because the risks are there. But if you do the right things, and when your risk factors start climbing, you back out. And I'm more proud of the hikes that I said, hey, we need to turn around because the risks are getting unreasonable. than the hikes that I pushed through, which happened a few times, especially early- and maybe took risks that could have made things uncomfortable or unsafe.
1: Yeah, that's wise. And getting, it, get it to Mount Kilimanjaro now, was that your highest uh, peak?
2: So yes. Um, in the Andes, I got close to it on a couple of hikes while we were down there, but uh, 19,341, you know, the air is pretty thin up there. Yeah, uh, You're on a pillar of the earth and, you know, they, they tell you to, be ready. You're taking one breath for every step because you can't get enough oxygen to your muscles, which had an interesting effect on my guides because they couldn't speak to give me instructions. You know, there was this uh, really kind of dramatic moment on the summit. Um, You know, I write about it in my book, but I I brought the ashes of my pup up because he had uh, guided me to so many mountain peaks and he had passed away before we climbed it. And I brought some of his ashes up to bury on the summit and we were up on the summit for about a half hour which is a little longer than you really want to stay up in that low oxygen and when it's time to head back the guides the guides that are leading our group say it's time to go and i said okay who's ready to to guide me and nobody answers and you know we got a team of my friends there that you know they were all splitting the chores to try to make it easier and i said okay who's willing to try and nobody answers and i'm like <laughs> okay i pause i kind of Look in the direction I think our overall guides are, because they can't lead me. And um, I say, "All right, who can hear me?" And I get a bunch of "Yep, I can hear you." I'm like, "Well, we got a problem here. I have to get off this mountain." And you know, one of my best <laughs> friends said, "I can give it a try, but I don't have much left." And you know, obviously, every step down the breaths get a little easier. So we were able to work it out. But it was a, it was kind of a funny and scary moment.
0: That's uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a good story that you got there in that sense. The, you talked about your book. Uh, maybe we can uh, dive into that a little bit. Your book uh, is called "See You at the Summit." And um, you know, what was what drove you to wrote to write the book, uh,
2: and what message are you really trying to get across to
0: the the readers?
2: Sure, the no, great questions, and thank you for that. So I do a lot of presentations, right? I do them, you know, from the corporate level to to all all levels of schools and. After I present, one of the most common questions I have is, you know, why don't you write a book or do you have a book? Because people want to know all the answers to how did I develop the mindset I have? How do I develop the tools that I have to do all the things that I want to do? And, you know, it's hard to answer that. These podcasts are great opportunities, but we're going to scratch the surface of all the things that are involved. And I said, you know, that's a great question. And a book is a daunting task. But I love challenges, right? I embrace it. I call it positive adversity. Make the goals in your life that are the challenge that will be the catalyst to make you grow. And writing the book was that catalyst to answer those questions for people. So it's it's my life story that, you know, the book is uh, See You at the Summit, but its subtitle is My Blind Journey From the Depths of Loss to the Heights of Achievement. And you know, the loss of my sight is obviously included in that, but that's not the hardest loss of my life. And the hardest loss of my life are all the pieces that helped lead me to have the the strength and the skills that i practice because all of these things you know they they aren't just gifts that we get they're things that we develop and we practice and we hone if we want to have resiliency to carry ourselves through all the challenges of life because we're all going to face them and that was the hope of my book that i'd share my story and maybe leave some Guides for people, some guide points on how they might approach some things with a little bit of a, a an insight from a blind guy, right? My vision of how we can all, you know, interact with the world in a maybe a better way.
1: Yeah, that's that's very useful. And I can tell our experience because I'm I'm a martial arts teacher, right? And, and I had the pleasure of teaching uh, people with disabilities already, like physical, mental learning. And uh, I, I also teach a lot of able uh, people, and, and those are the hardest ones to, to, to motivate sometimes because they have those self-imposed uh, perceived uh, limitations that I just can't get out of their heads. You know? right. uh, so uh, besides the your, your written engagement there and the book, you've published already, uh, you're also a very active uh, keynote uh, speaker. And uh, I heard that your next engagement, I think, will be the, uh, uh, a talk at the Canadian Ophthalmological Society in June. So what it, uh, can you advance a bit like what the message you're willing to share like, on that talk?
2: Sure. I, uh, I'll probably have a couple of keynotes between now and then, actually, because they, they come in pretty regularly, and I'm, uh, I've got a collegiate commencement to give as well before then. But uh, that message, right, I think there's a powerful thing. I have such a, such a great deal of admiration and respect for what the eye doctors of the world, what the ophthalmologists of the world can do for us, because I respect what sight, what our eyes, and the health of them allows and I respect, especially right, my own site was saved for 11 years beyond what it might have been because of a doctor who was quick thinking. And I, I love that, but they know that part. What I want to share with them is some of the other powers that are within their grasp. And it's the power, right? It's, it's courage, compassion, and connection. I really believe in it. It's, right. it's, how, it's the seas beyond the sea. And what that is, is how to help people get connected with all the other sources that will complete their life, right? Because my eye health was only one part of that. And the mental, emotional, and the physical skills that I would need to be a whole person of health when I lost my sight and when I was losing my sight is a step that we can be better at connecting. And that simply involves that That connection point between the ophthalmologists and the service trainers that that help us gain those skills, that process, the better they start working as a team, and so teamwork will be a little bit of a theme, the better that teamwork works to help somebody who's probably not gonna be in the best state because there's a little bit of emotional trauma and turmoil during transition for somebody losing their sight. So the more those teams can advocate to work together to bring that person To see those opportunities for themselves, the better that transition will be. And I think that's one of the number one opportunities to help people have a clearer vision for a better life. So just maybe building on that point a
0: little bit, Randy, um, if you were in the position where you were giving physicians or patients, the other side of that equation, um, any advice Uh, let's say immediately after someone gets diagnosed with a blinding eye condition, you know, what might you tell the the clinician that they can do um, and what might you tell the individual who's being diagnosed? And uh, you know, maybe, maybe we can dive in a little bit into mindset on that because uh, that seems to be kind of the ace in the hole here. I find uh, in everything we're talking about it, you know, with mindset uh, about being able to, uh, you know, attack this, problem in a certain way. So I'm just curious if you have any, any thoughts on that.
2: I do. And and it's, it's not a linear solution, right? Because every patient might be at a different point in their mindset. And there are so many things that could intimidate them and so many things that might resonate for them. And it's hard to judge those things. So knowing what is that right connection point? You know, I speak to people who are new to sight loss on a regular basis because they get referred to me all the time. And the first thing I have to find out is where they are. And that's a hard read sometimes. And honestly, that's not what most ophthalmologists are kind of going to be trained to do. So I'd I'd love if there was some easier integration between the ophthalmological offices and the centers for site services to have one of the you know social workers that is trained for that to be at quick call and access to get to those offices to, to be able to speak with those patients and, and you know provide the, the, the free consults that are most places do to say, hey, you know, this is really overwhelming right now. And we just want to let you know that we can help resolve and take it down to whelming, right? Um, we can help give some of those solutions and there's a process. And what's that right stage? They need to help find that and work to that. And, and in regards to the patients, Right. You know, a lot of these agencies, you know, have a name like, you know, Association for the Blind. And boy, if somebody's losing a little sight, they hear that and they're like, I'm not going blind, am I? So, boy, a doctor doesn't necessarily want to expose that. So how do you how do you manage by knowing where that person is in the fear of what might not be coming? Right. You don't want to make them think something worse than is reality. But at the same time, you want to make sure that they're not missing tools, low vision aids that could truly augment their sight. You know, the number of times somebody a little older who just wants to read a, a paper or a book like they've done every day of their life or see a grandchild's picture, but they're so afraid of accessing anything that could help them. And I'm not even just talking about technology. It could even be a, a lit magnifying, um, you know, arm, arm piece that could go over the, their printed material, but they don't have access to that and they don't know that it exists or the right format. And how do we do that? Well, there are trained professionals, and making sure that that teamwork and integration can be there to kind of gauge that that patient in the right way, and introduce that patient in a gentle way.
0: I think that's uh, you know you hit on a few a few uh, good points there, and those are some things that have come up in conversations in the past, uh, you know, personally and through the podcast. And in that piece that's missing between, um, you know, maybe what the patient's experiencing and what the doctor can provide. And I understand why that uh, gap is there, right? So I think that those types of services uh, being readily accessible and easy to find would be uh, would be phenomenal. Um, uh, 2020 Vision Quest, where can people learn more about uh, the organization? What's being what, uh, what you guys are doing?
2: So I, I love you know our website is a one stop connection to a lot of different other sources. And our website is 2020visionquest.org. But we're on all sorts of social media, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, we have a YouTube channel and, you know, we're everywhere that you, that you can find this podcast, I, uh, I hope. And, uh, you know, that'll link you to our book, which is, you know, an ebook. It's an audible. And, you know, we try to be out there and, and very accessible to people because, you know, here's you know, my real perspective is that I went through this journey and I had some great encouragement and mentorship and motivation and support. And I love my life as a result. And we certainly want to be that resource for people in the visual community, um, the sight loss community, but also just in anybody can learn to be reaching for their peak potential. How can we be better people, better than we were yesterday, better tomorrow than we are today? And we think we've learned a lot of things about that. We want to share that because we want to build a better world.
0: Randy, um, I think I'm going to be sitting and listening to this podcast. The stats I'm going to download 10,000 times (laughs) for the next year, you know, (laughs) those those days where I'm like, Hey man, you know, yeah, blind again. Yeah. It was the same. Like like you said, Uh, you know, just, uh, just to get fired up, it'd be tough to to not feel like you just had a triple espresso after listening to this. So um, listen, thanks so much for, for doing this. Uh, This is awesome. Um, We uh, we certainly hope to be able to get you back for around two at some point because we can dive deeper into some of these, these other stories and um yeah i think i'd just like to to say thank you from from uh, my perspective personally but also from, on
2: behalf of all the all the listeners for sharing your stories well thanks for what you're doing with the broad eye and with your lives let's uh let's keep doing the work we're doing and making this world better and expanding everybody's vision
1: Randy, thank you so much for, for chatting with us. It's, it's very inspiring like, to meet to chat with people like you. And, and I agree that uh, your message like, is important, not only for people with visual uh, deficiencies, but for everybody. Uh, it's very inspiring like, to hear what you've accomplished and, uh, and your energy as well.
2: Well, thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you.